It's good to see everybody here this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be there this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 again. Um, Just be praying for our body. Excuse me. There are many among us who are fighting illnesses of various sorts. It's obviously impacting our ability to to carry out our weekly ministries. Um, Just be praying for us as we navigate through that together. And let's be patient with one another uh, as we have to, you know, fill holes where they, where they come up and such as well. Uh, let me encourage you, though, where the opportunity exists and you're able, make sure to partake of that, that group discipleship that we enter in together. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's opportunities on Tuesday morning, men, we have Bible study at 6 a.m., and we let you sleep in on Tuesday morning. Till 5.15 or whatever time you have to get up. But 6 a.m. just down here at Jalisco Grill. Join us there as we go through the book of Mark together. Uh, we look through that or using our, our, our uh, Sunday morning Bible fellowship uh, to guide us on what we discuss there. Ladies, the Hebrews Bible study on, on a Wednesday morning. You get to sleep in until brunch time because it's not till 10 a.m. Uh, and of course, we have that Bible studies and fellowships on Sunday morning and Wednesday night as well for adults and children and youth. Uh, each week, just a reminder that this week, though, <clears throat> excuse me, for the children, we're gonna, we won't be having that just due to uh, various scheduling and uh, just resource constraints with people being out sick. So if you haven't turned over to Ephesians chapter 5, today I'm going to talk to you about DUI. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about driving under the influence. Um, there were jurors who met one time, <clears throat> and if you've ever been to a jury duty and you get selected to be on, in a jury panel, so you have to sit through and you're sitting there, and, and there was a case of DWI or DUI, driving under the influence. And the question was asked of the jurors, and the question that was asked was, if you saw a drunk person, could you identify them? And as they went through the jurors, I came to one, and that juror said, absolutely. And they, well, you seem pretty confident. And he said, well, if I see a drunk person, there's certain evidences that they're drunk. They usually can't walk straight. They have slurred speech. Their eyes are bloodshot. They, there's all these evidences that show that they're, that they're intoxicated. And uh, needless to say, that juror was selected for the jury. <laughs> And they got to sit that bar. That juror was my dad. <laughs> and he got to sit on a case as he said, well, sure I can. There are evidences. I don't just have to have a blood alcohol content. There are other external evidences that you are driving under the influence, that you're intoxicated. Now, this morning, I'm not actually going to talk about driving under the influence. We're going to talk about being under the influence of something very different, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit. We'll see here in Ephesians 5 that there's a contrast that's going on. And we're going to specifically look at what those evidences are of being filled with the Spirit. But before we look at that, excuse me, I'll just tell you, i got to stop mowing my yard. It's it's more and more dirt than grass. And... uh, you get to hear me after I've inhaled yard, I guess. <laughs> so I got to work on that a little bit. But before we look at what, what it does look like to be filled with the Spirit, we will take on the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? All right, so the first one is a question of evidence. 
The second one is the question of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And we're going to look at that. So if you haven't already, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, as, as Kyle read for us already. And we're going to take a look at these two questions. And we're going to start by, with the actual second question I presented is what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You'll notice there in Ephesians 5.18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I spent a little time last week just talking about, you know, to get drunk with the wine. As I ended the sermon, was describing one of the practices in the ancient world was that you would consume enough alcohol so that it would allow the God, and particularly the God Dionysus, the God of wine to take control of you, and then you would do things that you would not do if you were not intoxicated. We know that this occurs in the modern world, that you, one of the reasons why some people seek to get others intoxicated is to get them to do things that they would not do otherwise. In the ancient world, they would actually use this as a form of worship. They would actually partake of wine to such a degree that it would intoxicate them, so now they would do things that they might naturally be inhibited to do. And they actually saw that as a positive thing, because now the God had control of them. Now, Paul says that's actually debauchery. It is, as it were, utter sinfulness. That's not worship in the worship of a holy God. That is sinful worship that you've partaken of. But Paul wants to use that familial under, the, excuse me, familiar understanding to explain a contrast of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, that, that's the, the intentional thing. I'm going to show you darkness. Remember the passage was, you were darkness, and now I'm going to show you what? You are light. Let me show you the difference is what Paul started building here, right? And he had just talked about, I mean, this is the, the third pairing in this passage. If you're going to walk carefully, that is diligently, intentionally, there's things you're going to do. And one of the things is like, don't be a fool, right? And if you're paralleling the thoughts, to be a fool is to partake of wine and let it control you in such a way that you would do things that you would not do if you weren't under the control. Rather, be wise and what is the wise parallel with? Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. Excuse me. The actual imperative is a passive. Now, you actually see this in the way it's translated. Do you notice it says, be filled? Right? If I told you right now, I want you to be hit by a car. Every one of you knows how to do this. It's about three blocks that way. It's called Marbach, right? Doesn't take long, right? I, there are people that play Frogger on that street about every day. I watch them, and I'm like, man, you are braver than I am, right? I mean, way braver than I am. They're also quicker, I found out. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm, yeah, anyway. Um, but if I told you to be hit by a car, you can't jump in the car and hit yourself, Okay, technically you can. Let me tell you a little story. I was playing golf one time, and we were in a golf cart. And a friend of mine was driving the golf cart. And I'm sitting over in the passenger seat, and all of a sudden I feel a thump, thump and I hear, oh! I'm like, what in the world just happened? And he goes, I ran over my foot with a golf cart. And I was like, how did you do that? 
I was looking at the attractive girl over there, and I wasn't paying attention, and he ran over his own foot. So I guess it's technically possible, if you really try hard enough, maybe to get run over. But the reality is, is it, you generally can't jump in a car and then get out of it and run in front of it and hit. What actually is happening, something else is hitting you. That's the idea of be filled. It's a passive verb. It's a command, but we tend to, we would use kind of verbiage like let it fill us, right? It's passively happening to us. I'm not doing it. So notice the command here is not fill yourself with the Spirit. You see that? There's a difference. You're not, this isn't, I want you to go figure out how to get filled with the Spirit. Fill yourself, right? That's not what Paul's trying to describe here. Interesting enough, this is the only place in the New Testament you're going to find where it gives this command to be filled with the Spirit. It's not like there's a parallel passage that says, be filled with the Spirit, and then gives you other things. You have to, you have to bring it together by, by reading the rest of Scripture and harmonizing what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And this is why my sermon title, I said, be filled by the Spirit. Because there is an external actor acting in our lives so that we would be filled by the Spirit. Now, this is what I would tell you if you're going to be filled with the Spirit. And I think it will point us to and help us to see that to be filled with the Spirit actually means to be filled by the Spirit. So look there in Ephesians. If you're in Ephesians, just look back a page or so in Ephesians chapter 3, verses, verse 14. I'm going to read 14 through 19. We actually, in, in, the, in the prayers we were praying this morning, I read this. I just want to bring a point of emphasis here of what it's showing Notice that in verse 14 it says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now we understand that rightly to be an act and posture of submission of prayer, submitting prayer to the Father. Right? That's what's happening. Paul is praying. Now he goes through this extensive, extensive description of what he's praying for. He wants, you to be, he wants God to grant notice that he may grant you to be strengthened. Notice, it is God who is granting. You see that? And then he goes on, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Right? And he finishes, so that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, is that you may be what? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. So if someone asks you, how are you filled, how are you filled with the Spirit? What's the means? How does it occur? The first thing I would tell you is prayer. You pray that God would do the work to fill you with the Spirit. You don't go find the Spirit like he's some sort of alcohol or drink to be consumed and drink it down. You literally ask God to be the primary actor. Would you fill me with your Spirit? Now, let's be clear, because there's, there's, a, there's a, an important distinction that we have to understand here. We are not praying that God would give the Spirit to us because we don't have the Spirit. That's not the point. Right? Read Ephesians. What, what is the, we, we have an eternal inheritance we're supposed to have, and what did, what did God say? What is the seal that shows to us we're going to get that inheritance? The Holy Spirit. You see, at salvation, when we come to Christ... Holy Spirit's in our life. There's no second feeling of, i got to go find a second work of, of God to give me the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit. That's not the issue at hand. 
What Paul is talking about is how does the, the, the control of the Spirit increase in your life? You got areas of your life the Spirit doesn't control? You fighting sin in areas? Of, yes, we all are. And part of this is, God, I need to be filled, controlled by the Spirit. And we, how do we do that? Prayer. Pray that God would work so the Spirit would control lives. The second thing that you see is actually that you'll see there, it is the Word that is the means that is used to fill us with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 15, it reads, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to what? The unity of, not faith, but the faith. It's a body of content of belief. The unity of the faith and of what? The knowledge of the Son of God. There's actually something to be learned. And he goes on to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of what? Fullness language. The fullness of Christ. How do you get to the fullness of Christ? Well, you get to it by going to the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And notice as he goes on 14, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of what? Doctrine. Do you hear Paul fighting against false knowledge? And he's fighting for the true knowledge of the Word. And so you see, what we're seeing here is that what needs to happen is that we would have true knowledge of the Word. This is, this is when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, that is controlled by the Spirit, that is what is at work. It is the prayer that God is working to control us, and that the Word is being used to work to control us together. In fact, if you look in Colossians 3, verse 16, it actually tells us in very, very similar language of what's meant here. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and I'll, I'll turn over there as I don't have it in my notes here, so bear with me just a second. In Colossians 3, 16, you'll see that it, it talks about the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ. Colossians 3.16 reads, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You hear the passive language again? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then, and then doesn't this sound very familiar all of a sudden? Teaching and admonishing one another in what? All wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. You see, when we talk about what is the means by which we are filled with the Spirit, by which we are controlled by the Spirit, that's what I'm really getting at. It is through prayer and the Word. There's a reason why when we come together on Sundays, an essential part of what we do is pray together, and an essential part of what we do is hear the Word of God together over and over because this is how God works for us to be filled with the Spirit it is not some second working that you have an emotional ecstatic experience it's going to almost sound mundane to us because it is a gradual constant process in which God works in our lives to control everything 
to fill us, fill us with all the fullness of God. So one of the things I would just tell you is that what you don't want to be doing is seeking some sort of second blessing, some sort of second work of the Spirit. Because if you are, you are on a fool's errand. It's not the way Scripture describes it. What Scripture says is pray that God will work in your life to control those areas that you know are not controlled by the Spirit. That God has not filled that part of your life with the Spirit's control. And pray not only that, but then also go to the Word to understand what does that look like. What does it look like to be controlled by the Spirit? Because the Word shows that to us. In fact, that's what we're going to drive to as we go through through this. You see, ultimately, what we mean by to be filled with the Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit controls us by filling us with the fullness of God. Notice who controls. Are you in control? No, the Spirit controls. But how does He do that? He fills us with the fullness of God. And so God is pouring into our lives through his sovereign work so that we would be controlled by the Spirit so that every part of our lives glorifies God. Every part of our lives shows who he is. Every part of our lives shows the fullness of Christ. And so pray that God would do that in your life. And then also, submit yourself to the word. Read it. Know it. Consume it. If you're going to consume something, it's not alcohol, it's the Word of God. And this will bring about the work of the Spirit. You see, what's happening is God is the primary actor. Do you see that? The point being, this is a passive command, a passive imperative. You are to be filled, meaning God is the primary actor to take control of your life. We are the secondary actor. So what we are doing is doing that which God has called us to do so that he would control our lives. God is primary and we are secondary. But <clears throat> what this passage really is dealing with is not what it, how you're filled with the Spirit. What it's really dealing with is what does it look like? What are the evidences of being filled with or by the Spirit? That's what this passage is showing. There are actually five participles. You'll see them by the ING endings in your Bible. <clears throat> and there are five of those that, that are there. We're going to summarize those in three ways so that we can understand what are these evidences that show to us that we are being filled with the Spirit? How does that evidence itself? Well, the first you'll see in verse 19, right? The command, do not be drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with or be filled by the Spirit. And then here's your first evidence. Number one, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We can say that what it is is speaking in song to one another. We call it singing, singing to one another. We are speaking to one another in song. The word there, addressing, is actually the word for speech. It can also be translated speak to one another. And speak to another, one another how? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. <clears throat> you see, excuse me, <clears throat> the form, <clears throat> the form of this addressing one another is in what? Okay, right now I'm not singing to you, am I? I mean, just for, right? I mean, <clears throat> my cadence also evidences I'm not rapping either, right? I'm doing what? I'm speaking, and when you think of speech, you think of what I'm doing now. There's no harmony, there's no melody, right? 
I'm not off key because there is no key, right? But the form that's used here that evidences that the Spirit is controlling our life is we do what? We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, speaking, or excuse me, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, it's interesting. The method is really that we sing and make melody. Do you see that? So the form is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The method is singing and making melody. Now, it's really interesting when you, when you get into this because, as we said earlier, the content that we are supposed to be speaking to one another is the word of Christ. That comes out of Colossians 3.16, right? If you look, it's interesting. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you want to know the real content of what those, those songs are supposed to carry, it's the word of Christ. Right? That's why it sounds so familiar when we say, let the word of Christ, if you're looking at Colossians 3.16, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts, to God. The content is the word of Christ. That's what's in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, you ready to parse what a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song is? Too bad. <laughs> but here's a challenge. This is why it's this. Psalms is what you would think. It's the word psalmoi, which is where we get the word psalms from, right? Uh, we take it from the Greek. Hymns is kind of what you think. We think of hymns based off very specific songs we sing, and I always forget, is it three, four times they put them in, but we... we we have very specific modern expectations, but hymns, in, in, when you look at the ancient world, um, pretty much had the idea of praise behind it. That was, that was really, it was praise songs, probably how we would see it. What's interesting is that last term, spiritual songs, it is a generic form of song. And so he puts a modifier in front of it, in front of it says, well, spiritual ones. Because it's a very generic term. In fact, you actually see this in the writings of Josephus. Josephus writes in his Antiquities to describe, and you may remember the story. You remember the story of Saul when he would we'd have a bad spirit. They would bring David in, and David would have to go and sing a play to him. You remember that? Okay. Realize Josephus is during the time of Christ. So he's using the same language. I mean, literally the same words is what you see here in the New Testament in this passage. And he writes, you're gonna, it's going to sound very familiar, he says in, in, his, in Antiquities, he writes, but as for Saul, some strange and uh, demonical disorder came upon him and brought upon him such suffocations as were ready to choke him, for which the physicians could do no other remedy but this. This is how you fixed it. That if any person could charm the pa those passions by singing and playing upon the harp, they advised him to inquire for such a one and to observe when the demons came upon him and disturbed him to take care that such a person might stand over him and play upon the harp and recite hymns to him. My point being is, Paul is using this generic language to say, you need to have songs of various sorts that proclaim the word of Christ to one another. A very modern application is that means you actually have freedom that you can sing hymns and choruses and praise songs 
There's no biblical prescription of the specific form the song has to take, which is why Paul uses very generically this language. There's a reason why even our own worship, we use different forms and sing. I mean, we sing some hymns. We did it this morning. We sing some modern contemporary praise songs. We've sing, you know, we've sung courses before that came out of the 80s, which I don't know that's borderline old or young anymore. Um, I still think it's young for my own personal reasons, um, as you might imagine, but uh, I don't know right? And the point being is, if you hear, and I could go back, I mentioned this before, one of the early controversies in the, ba- the English Baptist was called, what was called the hymn controversy, because they were debating if hymns were ungodly. Um, if you've really gone back in Baptist life, we didn't sing hymns, because those were ungodly. Some of you are probably a little shocked. Yeah, because the churches had to realize over the years, no, the form of song that you use is, is completely okay. Now, part of our commitment as a body of Christ needs to be then that we worship God together through singing, right? That, go back. The question is, what is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? It is that we sing together. We worship together. Now, I actually want to go a step further. There, there is some, as you know, that believe that you should sing a cappella. You should not have instruments, you're familiar with these, right? I mean, there's some that believe that. And the Church of Christ, for example, has this conviction because they look at the book of Acts and say, well, I don't see evidence in the book of Acts of this. I want to challenge that based on this passage. Now, I didn't ask for permission, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to, I, I found Kyle Ross Sr.'s life verse. Yeah, take note. Kyle, he plays the bass for us. You guys see him up here on Sunday mornings playing the bass. You know what you do with the bass, right? You, you pluck the strings, right? That's what you do. And Kyle doesn't play the cowbell for you Saturday Night Live fans. You know, what was the, what was the answer? Every song needs more what? Yeah, look, so I, I was just waiting because I wanted to see who you were, cowbell. Kyle, every song needs more what? More bass every time. Okay, life verse for you right here. It's interesting the word that is used if you're looking there in Ephesians 5.19. Singing and doing what? Making melody. The word literally means to pluck. Amen. That's the, that's the amen I'm going to get this morning. Yeah, we are plucking for Jesus. All right, I like it. It's an interesting term because of how it's used for different things. It is used to describe the plucking of a bowstring to see if it was taut. You would pluck it. The other one was we do this nowadays in carpentry. You ever had chalk lines? You know what a chalk line is? Did you know? I, this went back, this goes back millennia. They actually used to use a, a, a form of, of chalk. It was actually a clay they would dry up and they would snap a chalk line. This goes back, this is like 500 BC. You know, so they're, you know what they use? They use the exact same word that says make melody there. They use the exact same word. They would pluck the line, snap it. This is the same word when you look. I read that, that passage from Josephus when it said that David would come in and he would play the lyre or the, the, the lyre or the harp because he was plucking it. My point being is this. What Paul does here in Ephesians 519 is he says we need to sing and put in a kind of modern vernacular pluck instruments together 
It's interesting that, that Paul is saying, make, that's why they, it's making melody, right? Now, everybody understands a piano is a stringed instrument, right? You play keys and it actually hits a string in there. The point being is, and by the way, you don't read out this passage, that means you don't use drums. I know, I, I don't have a live verse for you yet, KJ, I'm working on it. But um, the reality is, is Psalms, is that where it's, he's, KJ's all over it. The thing we need to realize here, and I, I know I'm making a little light of this, but it'll be memorable for you, it's actually to remember we are called to sing together. That's why it's an essential part of our worship. Right? Martin Luther saw singing as second only to the, the preaching of the Word of God. Right? Because it's so formative of us. And it shows to us, in singing, you know this, you've been in the car, it's when you have to roll up the window, even though your AC doesn't work and it's 102 out, you know you sing off key, but the song finally came on, and you're going to belt it out, right? So you turn it up, and you sing at the top of your lungs that no one else can hear, right? Because, man, it just, it just shows, I love, love this song. That's what we're doing here when we say we're singing and making melody together. We're actually playing instruments singing, making melody together, because that's biblical. That's Christian worship. Now, the last thing in there to point out is it says that we are to sing and make melody to who? To the Lord with your heart. See, the the point here when you look at this is the target of our worship is not ourselves, The target of our worship is God. To the Lord literally is referencing Christ. It's the second person of the Godhead. The Son is saying, I want to praise Him for what He's done. Now, we see elsewhere in Scripture that it is praise Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a right reason why we praise all three, right? We actually sing that in your doxology, you know, praise God from whom all blessing flow, right? We actually say that we are to praise the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. We talk about that. But here the particular focus is to bring praise to Christ, to praise the Lord. And notice where it's supposed to come from. What's the very source of that praise? Where does it well up out of? Your heart. You see, what we have to realize is that the most excellent singing in form and quality can actually be the worst worship. Hear me again. The most excellent singing and playing and form and quality can actually be the worst worship. Because we don't worship for perfection of instruments and singing. We do it from our heart. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't seek to do things with excellence. We should. We should do them well where we can. Uh, I, I like to say excellence with grace, right? Don't use excellence as an excuse to condemn somebody because they're not perfect. But the real issue at hand here is where does that worship originate from? It's from the heart. Now, hear me for a second. Do you remember, you remember in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 9, there, there's a, a father who comes to Christ, and he says, your disciples couldn't cast out this demon in my child. Remember the story in Mark 9? And, and, and Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. You know? It's funny because in the story he says, you know, I don't know if it's possible. And Jesus is like, 
Everything's possible to anyone who believes. I mean, you know, just hear the frustration in his voice when he speaks it. And the father's response to that is, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, hear me for a second about our hearts. Some of us come in here and you're struggling with some very real things in life. It may be deep sin in your life. It may be injustice. It may be the sin of other against you. It may be uh, it, it just evil overwhelming your life. It may be the plans that you thought were going to happen are all falling apart. And you, I mean, you're, you're genuinely struggling. And, and let's be honest, you're like, I do not feel a happiness to praise God. You ever come to worship that way? I have. You walk in and you're like, I, there's anything but a feeling of I just want to praise. But realize that that struggle, when you realize that it's God who, who you need, it, that's, that's the belief. I believe. God, help my unbelief. God, I want to praise you. I really do. Help me. Help my unbelieving heart about your goodness and your greatness. It's not the time to walk away and say, well, I don't feel it from, from my heart. It's actually just the opposite. I know it's in my heart, God. Have the Spirit control me. Bring it out of me. Take my singing and my praise. And God, I am giving it to you. It may be feeble. It may be doubting a little bit right now, but God, I want to believe in who you are and your goodness. Help me that I would praise you. And as we do that, I, I want to just challenge us that we think, think about something. Do all our, quote, Christian songs we sing actually bring our focus and attention to Christ? One of the things that, that Reggie and I talk about as we worship is, is trying to choose songs that help us to come to praise God. And, and, and honestly, because there's a lot of metaphorical language and there's words that choose and there's copyright laws and all these things that come to play. You know, sometimes it gets a little challenging for us. And so we have to, we're trying to pick songs, we're trying to, but ultimately what we're trying to do as a litmus test is how do we bring ourselves together so that we are singing to the Lord from our heart, not about ourselves, but about the goodness and greatness of God. The second thing is the evidence is thanking and praising God. And you're going to see that there in verse 20. What are we supposed to be doing? Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this reflected in the parallel passage in Colossians 3 verse 17 where it says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We see this language in Romans 8.28, where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's the same phrase, all things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, we must be thoroughly convinced that nothing escapes the goodness 
God's goodness for us and towards us. Nothing. You know, Friday night and Saturday, we had the, the What About Evil conference. Anyone who attended will tell you, there's some hard, hard truths to think about and realities that you have to deal with. I mean, some of the, some of the illustrations that, that Scott used, uh, Scott Christian, the, the, the speaker used, made me cringe. I mean, it just, not just broke my heart, but man, you, you hear them as he talked about atrocities. And he says, what do you do with those things? And the answer is God even uses those great evils, right? These are not minor mistakes. These are not individual occurrences of evil. These are massive, horrendous, gratuitous, seemingly inexplicable evils brought. And Paul says, even those God uses for good. Now, I will tell you emotionally, it does not feel that way all the time. In fact, I would tell you emotionally, it feels exactly the opposite. But because the word of Christ is originally dwelling me, I am convinced of its truth that God could even use that. That Joseph was right when he said to, a, to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. He used you selling me into slavery to save a nation. He used the injustice of me being accused of rape against a woman to bring about putting me in the second power of all of Egypt. He used me, sending me to prison for his glory to save his people. He used the murder of his own son to save us. You see, our gratitude must be for everything. Not just the good things that we like, but even the suffering in our lives. God uses that for good. And realize what he's saying is that we are only to praise God at any time. Why? Because of Christ. Don't miss that in the second part of, of verse 20. We are to, to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize there will never be a time, ever, even all the way into the extent of the everlasting eternity we are to enter into, that we will not need Christ as our mediator before God? It will never occur. Why are your sins and my sins forgiven? Why are we looked upon as righteous? Have we ever earned the right? Can we ever earn the right to approach a holy God? And the answer is never. And that's not just now. And that's not just at the end of this life when we die. That's not just in the intermediate state when we're in heaven. This is forever. There will never be a time in which we should not praise God for sending the Son because every moment of our eternity is there because of the work of Christ. There's a reason why we approach God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because in doing that, we are saying everything about Him, all of His work, what He has accomplished is why we can approach God. There will never be a time in which we can approach God without Christ. This is why when you read passages like in, in Hebrews, and I'll just read 
1. Uh, Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Why? On our behalf. And that doesn't end. Because the writer of Hebrews tells us in, in chapter 7 that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. That you had to get more priests. Why? The guys kept dying. And I needed someone to, to, to go before God and say, be propitiated for my sins. Don't extend your wrath against us. But he died. Get me another high priest. That one died. Get me another high priest. That one died. Get me another high priest. But what happens with Christ? That one died, but he rose again. And he's alive eternally. And my God stands on my behalf every day, every moment. It says, Father, this one who deserves hell and damnation and your wrath, this one, let him plead before you because of my work. There will never be a time, never, in which we don't need Christ. So there may be suffering and injustice and evil in your life that you're angry and bitter about and resentful, don't be unwilling to thank God for it. He can even use that and redeem it for your good. Because our high priest is eternal and stands before the Father and says, I redeem even such things. The last thing is submitting to one another. And we're going to spend some quality time on this one. Uh, I, 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 I was talking earlier this week and Someone said, boy, it's going to get real, real quick. <laughs> the submission passage is coming. I said, yeah, I'm just going to skip to Ephesians 6. It's safer, you know. We're going, to be, we're going to deal with submission. But I want us to see something before we go into this in, in relationships specifically. That our third thing, our third evidence is that we submit to one another. The term uses mutual submission. And there are some that, that don't really believe it's about mutual submission I actually, and I, I've spent a lot of time looking at this. Um, my wife will tell you I spent way too many hours. My, my master's thesis is on this very word, hupotasso, submit. Uh, that's what I wrote on. I got it all wrong, I think, but regardless, I spent a lot of time on it. Um, I didn't get it all wrong, but the word actually means to, to order under something. It's actually the combination of two words, hupo and tasso. Hupo, you actually know. You ever had hypoglycemia? That's actually hypoglycemia. It means you have low blood sugar, right? Its opposite is hyper. You ever had hypertension? High blood pressure. Hupo, or hypo as we pronounce it, means low, and hyper means high. And uh, you don't want to. You want a hupo child, not a hypo child, right? I mean, it's a, or hyper child. Anyway, you get the idea. Tasso means to order under. In Matthew 28, you see that actual word, not, not submission, but the word tasso, to order, and order it. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them, directed them. That's the word. They went because that's where he said to go. And that's what submission is about. It's about submitting to the direction, the need, the, the, the requirements of others. Now, we're going to see, and we're going to build on this more next week, one is that submission is a choice. You choose to do it. 
The word here, submitting to one another, as we look at this, is what's called in the middle voice in Greek. We don't really have that in English. But middle means, in, it's what's called a reflexive middle. It's something I have to choose to do. This is not the word subjection, and, and that is really important when we talk about relationships. There's a volitional choice, but what it doesn't tell you is the why. You have to understand the motivation is explained externally to that. If I just told you submit, and I just said that, it doesn't tell you why. Like if I told my, you know, one of my children when they were little, submit, the implied reason was because I'm your dad and I'm bigger than you are, right? Now I do that to my firefighter son and I think, please don't hit me, right? But the reality is, is that, that there's the, the, the reason for the submission is separate from the submission itself. And you, you're going to have to work through that and we're going to work through that together because there are going to be different reasons. I'm going to talk more about that as we build over the next week or two on this. But the motivational reason has to be given or clarified to understand why you're submitting. That's the point. Well, okay, look here. We are to submit to one another, and that is the word. It's, it's to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why? Why do you submit to one another? Is it to placate each other? No. Right? Is it enable one another in sin? No. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The little word is fear. It's the word we get our word phobia from. Out of fear. That is out of respect for who God is and what he's capable of, of who Christ is and what, what Christ is capable of. Right? We, we do this towards one another because Christ is the one who compels us because he is our Lord. We do this because of Christ's lordship. You see, our mutual submission to one another is an act of humility and evidence of the lordship of Christ. I'm going to advance that argument more as we talk about relational dynamics, husbands and wives, children and parents. We're going to get into the whole masters and servants or slaves and what was going on. And we'll have to work through this together. But I want you to hear and I want you to carry this with you. Submission does not mean subjection. It doesn't mean I get to exert my power over you and make you do what I want you to do. You would use a very different form of a word here. It's actually about you being compelled to submit to my, my, my needs within the body of Christ so that our Lord is honored. So what it tells you is there's actually times that submission isn't appropriate. And we'll talk through that some as well. That'll get you a little bit. But I I want you to to leave this morning with just remembering we want to be filled, be controlled by the Spirit. And we want to evidence that to those that see us and to one another by singing to one another in song. By thanking or praising God with each other for everything And by submitting to one another in in humility, because Christ is our Lord. Come back, and over the next few weeks, we will really consider that last idea. What does it look like to submit to show that Christ is our Lord? Father, we thank you for this time together. I pray you would use it for your glory, your great glory, and for our great good. I pray knowing, Father, that you will, because we are convinced 
that we should praise you for everything because you do use it for your glory and for our good. Father, help us as a people so that we would be controlled by the Spirit in every area of our lives individually and in every area of our lives as a body so that people would see we are those that sing to one another so that we would know the word of Christ. Father, that, that we, we praise you for all that you are and all that you do because we know it is for your great glory and our good. And Father, that we submit to one another in the body of Christ, seeking in humility to do that which is most glorifying to you and for the greatest good of our brothers and sisters, because Christ is our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.